Good morning and welcome to The Other Side, a faith-based think tank on policy, economics, entertainment, and global community. I'm your host, Evan Park, and I'm here once again with the coolest co-host on this side of eternity, Erin. Hey, everybody. We are so excited about the response we're getting. Keep tuning in. We love hearing from you. And welcome once again to The Other Side. Now, once again, we've emerged to inspire hope and advocate and search for solutions to the problems that besiege us as a society and to do so while keeping the move of God and the world in mind. We hope to serve you, our listener, by using our time here to inspire you, to educate you, to inform you about the issues, but not only do that, to motivate you to go out in your communities and make change. And of course, we also want to entertain you. Yes, and we want to entertain in such a way that whoever's under the sound of our voice, under the sound of the voices of our guest uh, or guest, whether we all agree or disagree with one another, we will find hope, truth, and just plain old reasonable thinking going on here on the other side. Now, today we're going to talk about fatherhood and the criminal justice system. This is a uh, one first part of our uh, fatherhood movement series that is going to have various focuses, so be sure to keep tuning in. Today, our guest is Mr. George Chochos. George Chochos currently serves as the Genesis Addiction Counselor and Men's Supportive Housing Program Case Manager for the Bridgeport Rescue Mission and is a candidate in the Master of Sacred Theology Program at Yale Divinity School. Now, in May 2016, he received a Master's in Divinity from the Yale Divinity School and one of the school's top honors, the Walcott Calkins Prize, a preaching award. Prior to starting his studies at Yale, George earned an associate's and bachelor's degree from Bard College through the Bard Prison Initiative, as well as a master's degree from New York Theological Seminary. Now, he did this all while serving a 14-year prison sentence, including, including a sentence in the infamous Sing Sing Prison in Arsene. Now, he has been a guest on the nationally televised Tavis Smiley Show and on NPR's Where We Live radio broadcast. His story has been featured in The Politic and the Harvard Political Review and in an award-winning article in the New Haven Register titled From Jail to Yale. George is married to his lovely wife, Amy, got married to her in June 2016, and he has a son named Christopher. Welcome, George. Thank you for having me. I want to start because today we're talking about... uh not just fatherhood, but more specifically uh, black fatherhood or African-American fathers in the criminal justice system. Sure. Um, as I've looked at the media, images of black men in the media are slowly changing. We have had our first um, African-American president. Uh, we have our first black superhero, Black Panther. And um, I think those are positive, wonderful changes. But my question is, have they changed enough that it benefits the safety and the freedom and the liberties of this next generation? Or are black men still feeling the ramifications of the original birth of a nation and the pimp player, lazy criminal, deadbeat dad stereotype? I would say while the election of, of Barack Hussein Obama um, did provide a, a positive image um, for black males to aspire to and also with, with Black Panther, uh, a superhero, um, however, it's it's still, I think, too early um, to say whether it's been able to eradicate the image of what is called in sociological circles the criminal black man. 
So if we look at the movies or, or if we look at the flow of, of, of hip hop from the 70s to the 80s to the 90s and the progression of it to gangster rap and to the movies in the 90s where it seemed that um, black people could only play um, certain roles of, of pimps, of drug dealers, um, of killers, of murderers, of gangbangers. Um, I think of things like um, King of New York. Um, New Jack City. New Jack City. I'm Men's, trying to think of the to others. Society. Menace to society. I mean, <laughs> the, these these are the images, right? That mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. kind of coincide, I think, with with a segment of culture that has been um, the mainstream and mm-hmm. the main lens by which society views black people. And I definitely think those negative images from the uh, past have definitely affected us and permeate the psyche of the black male experience in terms of how uh, maybe a white cop, not every white cop, obviously, or every cop who isn't a person of color, how they may first see a black male. But do you think that it is changing at all? Do you think that having a black president, having, um, because it, 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 I don't know that it can change us, our generation, but this generation coming up, these children coming up who only have known two presidents, maybe a black president mm-hmm. and uh, the one we have now, sure. who are, are now seeing superheroes. Do you think those kids who are going to become lawyers and DAs and police officers, their experience with um, African-American males will be different than, I'd say, uh, the great generation, baby boomers and possibly Generation X and maybe even millennials? Well, I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic as, as much as I can, but I, I think coming out of, I mean, the civil rights movement with, with Malcolm X, with Martin, I think we had a number of different um, positive role models that were, were in the public imagination, um, so to speak. Um, but that led us right into after Martin King gets killed in, into the 70s and, and the heroin um, epidemic and then the than the crack epidemic, right? And now the heroin epidemic is resurging in other communities and all of a sudden it's a mental health issue, not a criminal justice issue. Mm-hmm. So um, while I, I think that we're, we're making some strides and, and now there are some positive images back um, in, in the public imagination um, to what extent it's influencing our youth um, is another thing. I've, I've worked with a number of different youth organizations. Um, obviously, my experience is not representative because I've only worked with maybe four or five different ones. But I can say for the ones in, in New Haven, one of the questions we ask kids between nine to 13 years old um, at Believe in Me Empowerment Incorporation's um, reading for reasoning summer program of a children of incarcerated parents, when we asked them who their hero was, they got stuck. Mm. You would think that they would say President Obama. You would think that they would say, and I noticed that nobody said their father. Mm. And, I, and, and, and that's telling. I mean, if, if, if that is um, emblematic or, or, or if that is, if that reflects the larger society for our, for our youth, um, I think that's a troubling um, scenario. Um, however, I mean, the fact that we do have these these new positive images um, gives me hope that we can steer the conversation um, in a different way and, and uphold um, different types of models um, for our youth than many of the ones that they're holding to, uh, meaning the rappers and other people in mainstream society. That was really an enlightening and sort of it kind of made me sad to hear that response that you're finding that with the youth that, um, you know, that these things that we think that they would esteem 
they're not esteeming. So, uh, yeah, that's definitely something to look at. And I'm glad you shared that. I remember a couple of years back, I was a camp counselor for Angel Tree. Angel Tree is a ministry. I think I know, George, you're familiar with Angel Tree. Angel Tree is a ministry of an organization called Prison Fellowship. Right. And they, they provide gifts for, gifts for prison kids for gifts. Excuse me. They provide gifts for children, for children when they, whose parents are incarcerated. And to be an Angel Tree child, you have to have at least one parent who's incarcerated. And uh, they also have a summer camp. And at the time, I, I, I did a summer camp one summer uh, with Angel Tree. And I had 10, 10, 11 year old boys. Most of these boys were black and brown boys, you know, in Los Angeles County. Uh, all of them either. All of them had at least one or at least two parents incarcerated, right? Now, these parents, obviously, who were incarcerated, and you, you, you've been in this situation. I'm curious in terms of your sort of what you've kind of seen in terms of the impact on sort of criminal justice and parenting. What you kind of seen just from not just for yourself, but just in terms of from people you know. I know you still, there's friends you still, and relationships you still made who are still there, and they have children, right? And they're, I'm assuming, mostly black and brown men. And I'm just curious in terms of what sort of they're seeing because they, they're not getting to see movies or per se. They're not getting to really listen to what's going on right now. A lot of times, and you can, you can correct me on this, once they go in, they're kind of stuck where they kind of went in. You know, there's not a lot of things in the prison, from what I understand. There's not internet. You don't, have a, you don't have an email. You don't get to download iTunes. You don't get to watch the, the latest film. So... And then you have children out there that you care about. Sure. Talk a little bit about that in terms of in relation to like what we're saying here about, you know, just images and 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 uh, criminal justice and parenting and not being able to parent your kids. But you're going to have these images out there that are probably going to end up parenting your kid for you. Sure. Wow. And then you said yeah. and then you also said and, and I want you to expound on more of that is that a lot of these kids couldn't name their role model. And and and, and I'm and I can get into more of that in terms of my experience in the camp. But why is that? What are your thoughts on that? Well it's difficult well, since I'm not a psychologist, I know that was a long. Yeah, since I'm not a psychologist, we're going to get to the systematic theology question. Yeah, yeah, I would. So, no, no, that's, that's all right. I would, I would say this. You know, some of the things that I've been thinking about, and and um, I haven't seen any particular studies on this, but I mean, think about hero images, or, or, or who's in hero. When we think of a hero, we think of somebody who's positive. We think of somebody um, who's esteemed by society. Um, imagine if you're a 10, 11, 12-year-old, and you're asked who your hero is, your father's in prison, how do you say your father's a hero when society labeled him a criminal? Mm. So the criminal's the hero? Mm. So if you make the criminal the hero, then it's more people like the criminal that you're going to start to look at, not people like President Obama. And you're going to emulate that. So if you think of these kids... But then what does a child do who does esteem his father, a father who maybe made a mistake, regrets it, and tells his son, this is a mistake, I'm paying for it, but daddy's not his mistake. I mean, are we saying that the kid can't esteem his dad? No, I'm not not saying that. I'm just saying think psychologically of of what that has to do to the kid. Mm. That you, you you have society labeling the father one way and the kid who loves the father has to make sense of it in light of what society is saying about him, which means he has to begin to transform, um, I think, terms like criminal or felon or even um, the prison system. Some of the introduction of, of kids into the prison system isn't the first time they get arrested. It's going to see a parent. Mm, that's true. 
And so you, I think it starts to desensitize the children to the prison experience of how traumatic it really is, because that's the time that you're most happy because you're seeing your parent. Um, I mean, what that does psychologically, I don't really um, I don't want to delve too much into that. But I think those are some of the dynamics that are that are at work. Um, I think they should esteem their father because I don't think anyone is is nobody should be defined by maybe their worst moment mm-hmm. or or maybe their worst action. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I'll just give you two, two examples of, of what prison um, what can happen. What are some of the possibilities inside of prison? One of my friends, when I was in Clinton Correctional Facility, hadn't talked to his son in five years, hadn't talked to the mother. We go out to the yard one day and his son's there in the prison yard. And he didn't even know he was there. Wow. Like, so so his, wow. his son was a prisoner. His son was a prisoner. He, had a, he didn't know where his son was for five years. Another one um, decided to go to college and, and higher education programs, at, at least in the early, early 2000s, were were few in New York. You had 72,000 people in prison. You had one master's program that took 14 people every year, and then Bard College came in and Hudson Lane came in, but they were taking 10 to 15 people a year um, out of 72,000. And you were part of the first class, right? Um, I wasn't part of the first class. I, I was um, probably about four years in. So, okay. so Bard started roughly around, well, they came in in 1999, but they weren't offering college classes. Um, the first AA graduation was in 2005. I got in in 2004. So I was like the third generation. Okay. Um, however, there were others. Um, the guys that were going to college, um, many of their children ended up going to college because they saw daddy do it. Mm. And that was the other side of it. They, they thought them, they, they, they considered that if my father can do this inside of a jail cell, right. then I can do it out here in society. And so you started to see um, people talking about um, or studies coming out with the level of educational attainment inside of uh, um, inside of the prison, with people getting degrees inside of prison, how that um, positively affects um, the the children's educational outcomes um, in society. So those Mm. are kind of like the two extremes. Um, Even some of the people inside of my college program were there with their father. Their father was in the same jail. Wow. Okay. Um, so you see some of those um, dynamics as well. And we know there's numerous studies, National Fatherhood Initiative, probably and in others that talk about if a, if a parent <laughs> is in prison, the, the likelihood, whatever times it is, three, four times, they're more likely to, to be in prison. And that's the whole idea behind Angel Tree Camps, that ministry. The whole part of it. Yeah. So I, I was um, I didn't get a chance because I wasn't involved in my children's life while I was in prison, but I was working in as a chaplain's assistant. I worked with the chaplain on Angel Tree, so mm. we would hand out the Angel Tree applications. Um, and then when I got out, I spoke with people who were recipients of it and, and what that did to continue to create a connection between the parent inside um, and the child outside. Um, I want um, yeah, sure. to ask another question because I think you you brought forth some information that I think is just I was not aware of, but I'm not surprised about, and that is uh, the effect that um, – parents who are in the criminal justice system getting their education has on uh, their kids. Definitely. I mean, we learn more by uh, influence than anything else. Mm. Um, So do you think that that said, are there enough opportunities for people in the criminal justice system to uh, receive a higher education? No. Yeah. No. So what can be done? 
to change that because if that is having such a positive effect and we see the effect that it has on you, you're now at Yale, you have a, I think a doctorate or a master's and another degree. I mean, you're on the, I mean, you're he's, doing he's, he's going to have a doctor so. in about five years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, I mean, let, so let me, we let see me speak the, to the that. positive effect. How, yeah. So what can we do to make that more available? Because sure. we say that it's about rehabilitation. That's, a quite a great way to rehabilitate, you know what I mean? To provide yeah. people with education so they get out and have opportunity. But yes, please speak to that. You know, the de facto, well, we, we, we say it's about rehabilitation. Um, and it's funny that we, we now call these institutions correctional models. Mm-hmm. And yet Sing Sing still looks the same way it did in, in, in the 1800s. And so we've, we, we've changed the name and some of the mission statements and vision statements and, and, and the goals of the criminal justice system, but we have not changed um, the way prisons are run, the, uh, the physical spaces that are, con- that are kind of like constant reminders of your less than human status, right? And so w- when that happens over, over a number of years, if you, know, if you treat somebody like an animal, how do you think they're going to act? Um, however, back to your um, question, it was actually um, college in prison um, – was a pretty wide thing back before 1994 with Bill Clinton's crime bill. It, it was Bill Clinton's crime bill that was actually sponsored or initially written, I think, by then Senator Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Um, we kind of blamed the right for this, but it was actually a, a joint effort because in the late 80s and the early 90s, um, both sides wanted to, nobody wanted to look soft on crime. So it was a mass incarceration time. <clears throat> Correct. Part of it. So, I mean, the, the crime bill, one, one of its provisions was that it ended um, Pell Grant eligibility for people inside of prison. So once the federal tap ran dry, most states said, well, you know what, we're not going to cover it. In New York, you had um, you could get Pell on the federal level. And you can get TAP, tuition assistance program. And other states have their own um, state tuition assistance program. Now, Pell's a grant, be. right? Pell's an educational grant. Pell is an educational grant. Um, so from, when, from the government. From the government. Right. So when you it's remove... It's a federal that, educational yeah, grant. Yeah, so when you remove that, all the states followed suit. They removed their grants and all those... I don't want to call them liberal, but all those colleges that were inside of prison, they did not redefine their program. They re- didn't redesign it. They didn't use their own money, even though they had put re- um, research report after research report that compared to almost the, the average recidivism rate, meaning that the rate that people go back to prison after the release, the national level was close to 70 percent. Um, there was an 80 percent success rate for those with a college degree. Even though they had all this, um, they ended the program um, and all the colleges ran out the door, too. And so from 1994 to roughly when when Bard and um, Hudson Link come in in the early 2000s. What's the, Hudson Link? Hudson Link for Higher Education is another college and prison program mm-hmm. um, in New York where they're not the degree-granting institution like Bard is. So when you go to uh, the Bard, through the Bard Prison Initiative, you get a Bard College degree. Um, Hudson Link is a nonprofit, and they work with a number of different colleges like Mercy College, Nyack College, and those colleges actually offer the degrees. They just work on getting... Um, the professors in to teach the courses. Um, and so once these college programs came back in, um, compared to roughly uh, 66 to 69 percent recidivism rate in New York, Hustling for Higher Education and Bard College have a 98 percent success rate combined. That's great. That's great. Um, so I, th- I think to, to, to answer your question, unfortunately... No one, I don't want to say no one, 
the prevailing argument has not been the economics, even though we know that the majority of people that um, don't go back to prison, there's 98% success rates for people that get a higher education in prisons, for example, in New York. Mm -hmm. um, it's similar mm -hmm. in other states. Um, the argument that is winning is they're criminals. Why should I pay for their education? Right. It, it's not do the, you know, it, it's not do the crime, get a degree. It's do. So it's about doing time, which means that they're thinking from a punitive model, not a rehabilitative model. And, and my kind of sense has moved from um, arguing for the economics of it. But if all sides care about public safety and people going back into safe communities and continuing to have safe communities, higher education in prison right now is the main way to make sure we have no new victims. I love that. I love that. Thank you for saying that. That's great. But not only that, too, mm -hmm. um, it goes back to the same thing about generation creating fatherhood and generational sort of perpetuating any kind of generational behaviors per se based on 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 whatever they see their parent model right correct for example um you just talked about the education side and it's funny because i worked on a, a case study last year and i've always wondered why they didn't sort of link education reform with prison reform not not simply just a, uh, and i i can't speak wholeheartedly on this uh, public school to prison pipeline that so many people talk about. But I do know that I saw uh, uh, a sort of an equal sort of degree of um, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the literacy rate, basically, for, 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 for prisoners nationwide was about fifth or sixth grade. Right. And then you're running into the same literacy problems with young men and even young girls, particularly young men mm. in third and fourth grade. And I'm wondering, well, why are they not? Why? Why? Why can these two? to um, situations be put together. And, 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 but I guess my point is that, but there's, there's definitely a link, you know, you just talked about sort of what, 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 what happens when um, prisoners go to college and their children see them in prison getting degrees and how that impacts mm -hmm. their children. So um, go ahead, Erin. I, 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 I don't want to no, be too long-winded. I mean, we're, we're on a wonderful track here because mm -hmm. I think that um, people finding this out and people were not aware, but I'm curious as to this. Let's just say in a perfect world that changed, that um, we went back to, I guess, back in time before the, the, um, that crime bill was passed. And there were opportunities for grants and for um, people who were incarcerated to get a higher education. My question is, how uh, big is the desire for those incarcerated? What, what would you say? I mean, most, some few, how many want to actually get a higher education while they're serving time? Um, I'm going to answer that in, in, in kind of a very broad, broad way. And I want to tie in some, some just one other point with that. Um, mm -hmm. The point I was going to make before is that while I was a teacher's aide, the largest class size mm -hmm. inside of the education program was for the adult basic education one class which is a kindergarten to fifth grade reading and writing level and math level. Wow. It's in prison. Grown men, the majority right? of the people in prison have under a fifth grade reading, writing, and math level. Wow. That being said, one of the things that higher education does is it gives you hope that there's something to strive for inside of these GED preparation classes. When a GED, which we know is <laughs> it's difficult to get a job as it is, but having a felon and only having it being a felon with a GED um, and being a person of color, 
um, going back to um, um, a neighborhood that probably doesn't have um, a lot of job opportunities is a recipe for failure. And it's funny that we send people back there. But but, but, to, but, but to your, hold yeah. hold your thought, which which that and that reminds me of reentry programs. I have a problem with some of them, but that's a whole other issue. But yeah. go ahead, go to where you were. But the readiness is. Um, <laughs> When you have higher education inside of of a a jail, there's less fights. It makes it safer. People in the educational programs have something to strive for beyond just a GED. Um, the people that that get the higher education, we actually go back and teach inside of these GED programs. So you start to see the the scores that people are getting skyrocketing, um, and then. There's always, I would say, when I when I was in Eastern Correctional Facility, there's maybe about 1,200 people there. Um, every year, there was at least 200 people, 10% of, uh, um, almost 20% of the population applying to get into BARD. Mm. And that's okay. only people that are eligible. So if you think that the majority of the people don't even are still in, um, don't even have a GED yet, um, right. if you could, you'd probably have 900 people. You got to figure BARD is a $60,000 a year, and they're giving you a free $240,000 degree. You think somebody in prison doesn't want to get that? Of course, yeah. they, everybody right. does. Yeah. Wow. And in terms of the GED, that's offered for free. Yes, that's not it is. something that anyone needs. Okay. Sure. Well, and, and so the people yeah. who go into that program and who then get out with their GED, do most of them then try to go on and participate in the college programs or would they, if they were available? Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I have yet to see um, anybody that did not that didn't have a GED that did not want to. Um, it's not some people didn't take it more so for fear of failure because they felt like they mm-hmm. couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. 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 I mean, but but it seems but, but these are people you said already or still or, or, or when you say GED, the people who had an issue taking it were these the same people who were struggling with reading from kindergarten to fifth. Sure. So, I mean, a lot of people probably have um, different learning disorders. Right. Um, other people that experience trauma to where they had psychological issues. That's, that's, that's and absolutely. so it's it's difficult focusing. And, and if you're a GED teacher, you know, if you're on staff, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, unfortunately, there's not a, a most of the, and I don't want to say that. I, I don't want to talk about the teachers because the teachers, are, I think, have, have a good heart and are trying to do something. Um, they're really trying to teach. But when you have people with such a, a, a wide range. Now, when I say um kindergarten to fifth grade if your reading and writing or math scores are within that so you have to go in that class so suppose you are good at math and you have like a 10th grade um math level but you only have a fourth grade reading level you still have to be an ABE one so how do you you know how do you teach a curriculum that's geared to towards everybody so people can be in a in that class for years and never get the individualized um attention they need that's why they hire um people on the inside um, to be teacher's aides. And so now mm. when we get our education and now um, BARD offers um, BAs in math, um, you can imagine the type of, of individualized attention because we can we work with people outside of the classroom. The teachers are only there for a two and a half hour module with 20 students in the class. Right. You know, we, we sit with the guys um, in the yard, in the mess hall, in, in, in chapel service, in, in different areas within the jail and work with people um, to help get them through. And I think that's why um, these college programs are such a success and why people are changing the world when they get out let me ask you this uh, i think oh, go ahead, Aaron, i'm sorry i'm sorry okay i i was going to change it up a little bit what the information you are providing is really priceless and i'm so glad you're sharing this with us as well as our audience today 
um, it shows, you know, how systemic <laughs> all of this is sure. and how it can be very easy to fail. I mean, you know what? It's almost set up for failure. In fact, the, the fact that you have done so well is truly God's grace and, of course, an act of discipline and will on your part. I was um, going to get us a little bit more back to the fatherhood discussion. Sure. Mm-hmm. Along this line, when you have somebody who maybe has gotten their GED or maybe gotten a degree while they were incarcerated, they get home. Now they have this kid who's looking at them or children to be a dad, and I'm going to bring gender into this. Oh, yeah, that's a definitely one. How has the changing gender roles in society, do you feel, affected black fathers, black fatherhood, that kind of thing? Because I think uh, the last time I read, the statistic of black women in Mm. getting a higher education far exceeds any other uh, demographic, any other group. So how do you feel like the changing gender roles in society has affected black fatherhood? That's, that, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> Thank you. That's what <laughs> no, I do. I, I think one of the things I, I know is that at least for the men inside of the college and prison programs, um, as they're going through their educational process, they begin to connect better with the mothers. Okay. And... Um, and they're connecting on on an intellectual level, not just a physical or or, or other level, right? And so um, I would say this though, and in relation to that, maybe it's not as, but there is um, a dearth of resources for women inside of prison. They don't have the same access to college and prison programs that men do. So the women inside of prison um, are really suffering from a really. Lack- Why is that? So you're you're saying that women don't have the same access to the the college programs not, as men? Not in the same. Why? Not in the same sense. Um, now I'm outraged. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 can, I can hear it. Listen, I, <laughs> I, I don't know why, but I would say this. Prob, um, no, I don't want to even say probably. I think when the college in prison programs came back. Now, prop before 1994, everybody had access to college and prison programs across the board. Mm-hmm. After 1994, when colleges started to come in, they, they probably started to look at what is the greatest need? Um, where are the largest numbers? So out of the 72,000 people, for example, out of the whole prison population, women only make up 6% of the prison population. So out of the 2.2 million people inside of prison, mm. 94% are men. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think schools were thinking, where could we make the greatest impact? I, I, I think that does women a disservice because the women are the ones that have the children at home. Mm-hmm. They're the mm-hmm. ones that are, are, are more likely to be um, um, the single parent when they get out. Right. So, right. So, so they need just as much, if not more so resources. And now the conversation is moving in that direction and we're starting to see um, more college and prison programs. So if, if you look at college and prison programs in New York related to how many prisons there are for men or women, statistically, there's there's more opportunity for, for women. Um, but that's just because there's more men in prison. But we're now starting to see um, a number of colleges. So Bard has is in one or two um, female prisons, but there's only like three or four in New York. Um, Hudson Link is also in another women's programs um, prison. So we're starting to see... Um, educational opportunities being expanded for women, but I think there still needs to be more resources for women.
Wow, thank you, thank you. I absolutely did not know that. Not happy to hear it, but glad that the conversation is changing. What question were you going to ask? As it's funny because I, 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 it's funny. To, I, I got quiet because I was starting to think about because George is actually a systematic theologian, and I wanted to, yes. and I wanted to, and I wanted to get some, <laughs> some sort. Of, first of all, I want you to tell us before, I, before I ask you the question, what. For our, for our listeners, what is a systematic theologian? You, know, you and I may know. You know, Aaron may know because <laughs> you and I have been in div school. Sure. Aaron just reads all the time, so she, <laughs> I don't know what Aaron knows. And I can say the theological answer um, from I think it's from Ansem, uh, faith seeking understanding, but that doesn't really help. <laughs> or Paul Tillich. Now, but now I'm going to ask you, uh, Anthem method of correlation. And Paul Tillich is for, uh, for, uh, anyway, for anyway. audience, but you can explain who they are. Um, no, s- systematic theology is. Um, looking at the truths um, embedded in the scriptural witness and in the tradition, um, thinking rationally about them and presenting them in in particular doctrines, right? So there is um, doctrines about God the Father, mm-hmm. um, God the Son. The doctrine of man, too. Um, there's is... the doctrine of creation. There's usually, I think it's five or six yeah. main different um, topics that are addressed. So mm-hmm. theology proper, which is talking about um, what we think about God, the, mm-hmm. the divine attributes, like who God is, what his character, what God's character is. Um, forgive me for using the pronoun. I can use she too. Mm-hmm. Um, um, that, that doesn't bother me. Yeah, it doesn't bother um, me. <laughs> but I'll just use God and God's. Right. Um, and then there's creation. So we talk about theological anthropology. We talk about the environment, God, God creating. Um, then there's soteriology, the, the doctrine of salvation. What does it mean to be saved? How are we saved? Who saves us? And, and what does that mean in light of eternity? Um, and then there's uh, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. What do we think about the church? Who is the church? What is the church? What is the church's mission? Um, and then there's eschatology, which is the study of last things, like what's going to happen um, in end times. And, and so we, we, we look at scripture. But more contemporary theologians, um, such as such as where I would consider myself, is we say that there, there are these eternal truths or, or that there's these timeless truths that um, are in the Christian tradition, um, but the questions don't rise from that. Mm. The questions rise from what are the existential conditions right now? The questions of what are we addressing right now? Fatherhood, um, uh, mass incarceration. Criminal justice, right. If we believe what we believe about God, what we believe about creation, what does that mean in light of the particular issues that we're dealing with today? What can we do? My my own research is is around um, uh, a topic called incarcerating the image of God, a political theology of mass incarceration, where one of the main things that we think about in in theological anthropology, um, let's just talk about the study of humans, um, is we believe that people are created in God's image. And if that's the case then what can we do to the human body in terms of what does that mean for justice? What does that mean for the types of spaces that we put people in, um, for the types of communities that we allow to to be built? I mean, what, what does that mean for human flourishing? Um, even in light of mistakes that people may make, what does what can we what can we do in terms of punishment? What does it mean to be to be just inside of this society? And so I'm trying to give a theological account of mass incarceration um, that takes into consideration um, the fact of who these people are that go to prison in their basic um, humanity and what that means, how we should think about them, um, but also uh, the redemptive side, soteriology. Um, what does redemption look like? What does reconciliation look like um, in light of the fact that what has been left outside of the a lot of the conversations, and that's why I changed my 
um, my talking points to, I, I don't want there to be any more um, new victims. Uh, but sometimes in the celebration of the successes, it kind of dulls the voice of the victims. That many, that for in my case, um, my story comes at the expense of a lot of people's pain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that needs to be taken into, into account in, in conversations. And I think that will get all sides of this issue to the table. Because the one thing we can agree on is that we want safe communities. Um, we want people to thrive. We believe in human flourishing. Um, and we want to do it, I think, in a way that is um, that allows people to actually reintegrate back into society, but also take serious that maybe some of the pain that we've caused as well. Let me ask two questions. That's great, Joe. Let me ask two questions. And this actually ties into theology. It's funny because I'm actually, this is probably going to help me with my writing <laughs> at this moment. <laughs> but you talk, but typically, and, and you said something's really interesting, and I'm, and, and I want you to Help me on I this. I wonder if it's the same thing I'm thinking of because I have a question. It, it, it might on. be. It might be. But <laughs> okay. image of God, oftentimes when I used to hear that, you know, it you, is. Yeah, the image ah, of God. it is. That, when I used to hear it, it was never connected to bodies. But now I'm now I'm understanding, at least for me, that it is connected to bodies. And you made a depending you, on you, which it, tradition it, that, that you're looking at. Well, if you looked at re, the Reformed tradition. Reformed tradition, I guess, the Reformed tradition. It's not, or is it? It is, uh, but, they, but they have a dual. They have a dual view of the image of God. So, for example, they believe that there's a material and there's a formal aspect to the image of God. Meaning that um, one of the aspects is who we are in, in our creation, like our genetics and everything. And let me, let me ask you, that didn't change after the fall. And when you say oh, reformed anyway, tradition, sorry. I have to ask for, for <laughs> the, when you say reformed tradition, what do you mean? Um, by reformed tradition, um, the tradition that goes back to the reformers of the 15th and 16th Luther, century, like Calvin. Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Melanchthon, um, and others. Um, also, I would think of um, some of the Scottish theologians um, and others. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I just wanted to clarify. Sorry about that. No, it's okay. So, um, so, so it depends. So, in terms of with the with the reformed tradition, there's a connection to the body. There's a connection to the body, but I I think it's problematic because. It's it's um, it says on one. Imagine a coin on one side of the coin. It's still there. The who we are in our creation, our genetics, our, our physical makeup, our, our um, physiological makeup is intact. It's what distinguishes us from the rest of creation. Mm-hmm. That's fully intact. But then the other side is um, the spiritual connection is broken. Okay. Now, that's problematic when you start to get to slavery, because that means that it doesn't matter about the body. It only matters about the other side of the coin, so it doesn't matter what we do to the human body, as long as we can fix the other side. And and but to, but in the lens you're talking to, which is my next question, looking at the, the, the look, being a systematic theologian, looking at the issue of incarceration, you do deal sure. with the body. I do. Can yeah, you, and, can I, you, and I want to go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, Aaron. What your, your question was? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, George, you said a mouthful, and it was wonderful because what I got from everything you said that um, in order for the prison or the criminal justice system or the prison prison system to flourish as it currently is, we have to take away the humanity of those in prison. We cannot consider them people who are made in the image of God. Sure. Because we can't look at them like that because then that would cause us to reconsider everything. Now, I do understand that there are people who have done horrible things. And if anybody killed any member of my family, it would be hard for me to see them as a, a person who is, came into this world in, in the image of God, too. So what you said, again, that I think we can all agree on is that we all want to be safe. And we all understand that there needs to be certain punitive actions taken. But what is the best route to uh, rehabilitate 
and uh, punish at the same time. If someone does something heinous, we'll say murder, they, okay, uh, there should be a consequence for your action, but sure. there's going to be one day where you're going to live across the street from me or be back in the block. So what can I do to change you? And what, and what should we call it as Christians for this criminal justice system to do? What is godly? What is righteous? What, you know, what is the best way to, um, to look like Christ in, with um, implementing consequence, but absolutely changing. And I, I realize we say this is a Christian nation, but <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't know. always do well, the Christian thing. Just in case the audience didn't see, Aaron kind of shrugged. I shrugged. When, <laughs> you no, know, I, was, I was in but, prison with, with a number of different people. Be, being in maximum security prisons in New York, um, there were people there, and, and you know, I, when I talk, I'm kind of talking in generalities, but I also need to, to say that not everybody in prison is there for something they did. Um, there are plenty of people that are innocent. I think the Innocence Project has, has showed that. I know a number of people that got out after 10, 20, 30, 40 years um, of, fa- of being falsely incarcerated. Mm. Um, but for those of us that, that, that did commit these types um, of, of acts, 95% of the people in prison are coming home. 700,000 people get out every day. And, wow. if, and if you look at the composition of our prisons, which they're mostly black and brown, um, the way to structure this, you go back to the neighborhood you came from. So if that neighborhood produced you, what do you think is going to happen? Um, so I- I imagine you're living in East Harlem and 3,000 people come back there every year from prison at an 82% recidivism rate, which means even if you're trying to have community, um, you're trying to redevelop your community, you have two and a half thousand new crimes being committed every year inside of your community, just from people coming home from prison. Um, what, what do you do in, in, in light of those, in light of that? And, and, and I would say this, um, I do believe there needs to be spaces um, for, for people who, after they've committed certain acts, but what we, going to prison is the punishment, but in a correctional institution, and if that's what we now have, what we do inside of the prisons matters. Mm-hmm. And now we have certain ways we've we've there's been enough research to know there's certain things that work um, that seem to work better. There's certain things that seem that don't seem to work better. But I, I, I would say this is that the the debates over prison reform um, coming, I would say, from one side is always, you know, um, how do we rehabilitate? How do we have people come back um, and become positive members of society? The other argument is more so about. Um, who, fundamentally and inherently who these types of people are. So when, mm-hmm. when, when Governor Cuomo wanted to come out with higher education in prison, have um, the public fund it, immediately there were three senators um, from a particular uh, party. Um, they came out with hell, hell no to Attica University and kids before cons. That was their um, counter legislation. Mm. So it's talking about that, well, these people are cons. So that defines them. That defines who their humanity. There's something less than human. They're, they're, they're convicts. They're not even human beings. Right. And I think that's where the terminology, the image of God comes for, because I want to get back to if we can agree that the basis of, of human dignity and, and, and our equality across the board is the image of God, then let's move from there to criminal justice reform. I'm not saying just open up the floodgates, but I th- but I think there has to be ways um, to have people um, who have the desire to change when when the desire is there, it needs to be met with the mm-hmm. opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I and I mm-hmm. left too many people 
my own advocacy is is fueled by and haunted by, I would say, um, the fact that I left so many people inside of prison that were much smarter than me, that had a greater drive than me. They just didn't have the opportunities that I have. And so that breaks my heart that when I when I heart. see that. And, and it's not so because I want to see everybody walk around with a Yale degree while well, that would be great. But because the people that are getting these degrees are going home and they're becoming fathers. Hmm. They're starting um, youth groups. They're going back and, and reaching the youth. They're, they're changing their communities. They're becoming entrepreneurs. Um, they're working with the former, D, you know, with the DA's office um, that sentenced them. They're, they're creating programs and, and, and opportunities and working with schools. And you, just, and you just see that. And if we could magnify that experience instead of the fact that because every time when somebody comes home, if they commit a new crime, they add another crack to the already breaking edifice of that community, and they set another negative example for somebody else to fill, um, to follow in those footsteps. And so, my, me, yeah, sure. Because um, you um, actually are walking, you're on the path of the next question I wanted to ask you, because we discussed how education while incarcerated is absolutely beneficial, not just to the person incarcerated, but to the family, to the children, to the community at large. Sure. What programs can be instated? So let's say you said 3,000 are coming home every day or 7,000. I forget the number. 3,000 to, to, to um, East Harlem really, every year, or, but okay. 700,000 across the nation across every the nation. year. Okay. So <clears throat> when these people get out and say they didn't have that program you get forty dollars but in they're, a bus they're coming out now okay so what can we do now outside sure. to help people because um, i've always found it outrageous that people can't vote if they got you know in certain states if they got a felony that they can't vote that's ridiculous to me because you're coming out and i'm going to tax you um if you get a job or on everything you buy so now i have taxation without representation because i'm not allowing you to select you know, your civil leaders. But anyway, what other things that can we put in place to help um, women and men coming home? Who are already, you know, out here. What can we do? Can I add to what that? Programs? Can I add to that? Because, um, oh, sure. That what? <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, like, jump on the bandwagon with you. One of the things that, and because we're, we're unfortunately running out of time, you, that's, that's time, right. but, but this is a, but, but no, but, but we're, this is a, this is a bigger topic we're going to keep dealing with father criminal justice, criminal justice education, you know. I know it's, I know it's huge. In fact, one of the things you said, and I didn't get a chance to ask you, but, but it sort of ties into what Aaron's saying in terms of what what we can do. You you said that, for example, Sing Sing has been the same place since nineteen when, when it was 1800s. created, eighteen hundreds. Uh, and you said prisons in general, uh, they, they 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 need to change the way they run. And 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 then you t then then you're talking about sort of looking at um, starting with the image of God, you know, and then going from there to policy, you know. That makes me think. Ultimately, whatever the solution is, in whatever compartment you you, you work, whether it's um, sort of mental health rehabilitation, drug rehabilitation, job training, which which um, uh, literacy, which I think is huge, you know, in general, that I feel like all of those need to somehow start from a systematic theological point of view where you're looking at the where you're thinking about the image of God and the people who or at least the organism that should be doing that should be the church of Jesus Christ. And and that's a that's a whole big, big thing because at churches, you know, <laughs> there are good churches doing great work, you know, but there are a lot a lot of churches, you know, where people just want to get their blessing and keep it moving. 
And and I think that's the thing we want to see change. Um, Aaron, I'm, I'm, I didn't mean to cut you off, but 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 I, back, but but yeah, but back to her point. Yeah, sure, I'll, I'll get to both of those points. Um, in I think it was in in the late 1960s or the 19 early 1970s. Um, I'm trying to think of the guy's name. He, he wrote he wrote an article um, called "What Works," and he examined it was pr- the largest study on um, prison programming ever. And he came to the conclusion, nothing. (laughs) Well, you know, 50 years later, we kind of, we've kind of done the research to show what does work, right? Um, But unfortunately, not everybody in prison is going to be able to go to, to college. I mean, that's just that's just the reality of the situation. But there are a few things that we can do. And let me talk about the inside and the outside and get to your point as well um, in, in as briefly as I can. Um, number one, um, everyone that goes to prison has to get a vocational program. Those vocational programs are 20 years outdated, minimum. Um, also, they, they're not geared towards real-world experience. For example, um, I became a Mason. I took six months of Masonry inside of a prison. How are, who's going to give a prisoner, how am I going to build the wall inside of the prison? So, so you, you have a well, mason. we're actually looking for wall builders right now. We're looking for wall builders right now. But if you're in prison, you think they're going to let you practice masonry? Of course not. Yeah, you're well, they might the let you do it and uh, not pay any, you anyway, no, down I'm, to the I'm, southern I'm, border, but I'm, that's a whole other I'm discussion. I'm just saying that there's, we're already, for example, we're spending in, in, in Connecticut where we are, it's around fifty to $55,000 per year. Um, to incarcerate someone in New Haven, we pay seven and a half thousand dollars for a kid to go to high school. So I think we need to re- <laughs> we need to we need to flip the script on that, right? So um, we need to find ways to cut costs and corrections, revamp their um, um, the programs inside of them, um, but also in relation to, to to your question about what can we do with people on the outside. Um, first and foremost, there are a number of programs that are on the outside. It's just that knowledge of those programs, um, access to those programs is not well known. So when I got out or when I go into side of the prisons, because I can go back in now, I go into prisons in, in New York, I've gone into federal prisons, I've gone into prisons here. Um, people don't know the resources that they have to them. So better um, ways of getting the information of programming into the prisons um, is another step. And with people on the outside, um, churches and, and other community-based organizations um, that are not offering reentry services should have someone that knows where these services are. So many times when people walk into church, they, they just don't know how to handle people that are coming home from prison. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there are those programs. But I would also say this, on, on a broader scale, um, we need to have a new economic strategy for urban America. There has not been, um, you know, since since the war on poverty or probably since um, um, the New Deal, there has not been an economic strategy or a reinvestment plan for urban America. Where I am, where I work in Bridgeport, if everybody just stops selling drugs and stop stop doing any crime, there's no way you can get a job for everybody. So there, there's a dearth of jobs. Um, there's a lot of negative opportunity. And this is what I think oppression and this is what poverty does. It maximizes your bad choices. Um, and minimizes your your good choices. So as long as we have that, and couple that with 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 be with with having a felony conviction, um, coming out with forty dollars and a bus ticket, 
um, and then have and then our social services um, are not a help up, but um, these social safety nets have become spiders webs that trap people uh, permanently. So um, I, I think the church needs to take the the church has to take an a different approach that it's, but the problem is that's not what it's geared toward. When we train pastors, we don't train them to be economists. We train them to be preachers. Mm -hmm. Um, So we we need to find ways to connect with economists, with people that can come in with business strategies, have a reinvent, we need an economic reinvestment strategy for urban America. I think the church can be involved in that. Um, And then when we have um, those types of opportunities, we can get people, because just getting somebody into a program without something outside of that. So the program is supposed to be geared towards getting a person a job, um, getting a person housing, um, um, reconnecting with the family. Um, But if you have no jobs, you have no job, then all you're doing is creating kind of like this safety net and and, and, and trying to do triage <laughs> for a situation that that's going to be difficult to remedy in the long term. Now, that's, that's one of the – and that's a whole other discussion. That's one of the uh, the deficits I see with actually reentry programming. But, Erin, you have anything you want to ask, final closing? No, I, I mean, I think this is great. I know we need to close, but this is definitely something that needs a part two, three, four, five. Oh, six, yeah, we're going to keep know. talking about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you yeah. got to come back, George. George, you gonna come, come back. back. You gonna come back, George? Definitely, I'd love to. Thank you for having me. Yay! Okay. Yay! All right. Thanks, George. Thanks for coming. And uh, on to the Amen Corner. Welcome to the Amen Corner. This is your boy Evan. Now we talked about fatherhood. Criminal justice, higher education, and prisons, we talk about a whole lot in this episode. It was rich. Now, it's worth mentioning Our brother George Chochos said something that really stuck with me. He said that, and he said this referencing many of the brilliant minds that represent the humanity that is in our prisons, many of them serving sentences that do not fit the crime, uh, people of color or people who are poor uh, in most cases. Uh, Now, he references uh, in this statement those uh, that I'm about to say, those who are there who have had the long desire to change and be better men or women. George said, and I quote, when the desire to change is there, it needs to be met with opportunity. When the desire to change is there, it needs to be met with opportunity. I'm going to say it one more time. When the desire to change is there, it needs to be met with opportunity. For George, his education that came about through the Bard Prison Initiative was such an opportunity for him. And what we have from that, uh, and including Yale, is what I believe, or who I believe, will become one of the most important systematic theologians of his generation. If you happen to be a Christian, and you are serious to some degree about your faith, you can identify with the notion of having a desire to change. The Holy Spirit wouldn't have it any other way with us because once we encountered Jesus, it was not Christ's desire to leave us in the same way he found us. And even in that, Christ is not a God of the second chance. He is simply the God of another chance. Christ is not the God of the second chance. He's simply the God of another chance. In the book of Lamentations 3, 22-23, Uh, It reads, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. 
Now that mercy and faithfulness that is new every morning and comes from God every morning extends to prisoners, their families and children, those who are trying to overcome past mistakes and looking for an opportunity to move on onto the right path. As those who are part of the body of Christ or the church, we are committed and we should be committed to making ourselves more visible in the struggle for righteousness and justice as advocates for those who we tend to forget, like prisoners, their children, and the communities they, they return to where the opportunity to do better is lacking. And by the way, uh, this reality is not new. Will we eliminate maybe the wrongs uh, that we see being done in our lifetime? No. <laughs> Yet we do have a mandate to do the good works that God has committed to us as the church to carry out. And in doing so, God is glorified in the gospel proclamation in word and deed, the very proclamation that makes disciples for God's kingdom will not be hindered by our inactivity as a church. And don't get me wrong, the church is doing a lot of good in this world, um, despite some of the bad press we've had. But I'm here to encourage myself and all of us to stay the course Fight the good fight and trust that with prayer, focus and hard work in the service of, man, service of humanity, God will give the increase to our labors. We will bear fruit and the good news of Jesus Christ will not be hindered, but continue to go forth in a way that will continue to transform lives as a powerful, progressive, spiritual reality in the midst of a sinful, unjust reality of our world. God bless you, and we'll see you soon on the other side. Thanks for tuning in to The Other Side. Join me on the journey at AaronSands.com, or you can follow me on social media at Aaron L. Sands. You can follow me on Instagram at EvanTheConqueror, or on Twitter, at Evan D. Park. Thanks again. See you soon on the other side. The views expressed on the other side are those of the hosts and the guests and do not represent the views of Yale University.